New Thinking Aloud, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring the spiritual awakening of Europe during the High Middle Ages. My guest is Dr. Betty Kovacs, who taught symbolic and mythic language for 25 years. She has served as chair of the board of directors of the Jung Society of Claremont, California, and sits on the academic advisory board of the Forever Family Foundation. Dr. Kovacs is author of Merchants of Light, The Consciousness That Is Changing the World. That book won the Scientific and Medical Network 2019 Book Award, as well as a Nautilus Silver Award. She has also written The Miracle of Death, There Is Nothing But Life. And now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Betty. How nice to be with you once again. Thank you, Jeff. We'll be talking about a wonderful period in human history, the spiritual awakening of Europe in the high Middle Ages. It's the building of the great cathedrals. It's the legends of the Holy Grail. But I think a good place to start would be with what are known as the Dark Ages, why there was a need for a spiritual awakening at that time. When in the late 300s, late 4th century, uh, the Roman Church was able, it was not only tolerated, it was the official Church of Rome, and by that time anyone uh, who wanted to believe in any other tradition uh, was in serious danger. So it was nothing else was permitted. Not even tax were allowed. Uh, no one could own a tax that the church uh, would not allow. Now, the church took the Jesus tradition, but it destroyed the hidden tradition. It inverted the Jesus story or the Christ story into someone outside of us that we should worship and then follow the law of the church as the Deuteronomists follow the law of the Deuteronomists. So it was lost with the Roman church. It wasn't that the Mundus Imaginalis was entirely destroyed because there was, there were images. The church did uh, have art. It had art and music, but the, it was, there was only one myth, one story that could be painted, that could be told. And that was the Jesus story as they told it inverted. Uh, we now know that it was definitely inverted because of all of the texts that are now available to us, not only from the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Nag Hammadi text about Jesus, uh, but in other texts uh, that before had just been discarded or not discarded, but just devalued and not really read. And only the canons of the churches had a privilege, but that's gone now. We are now able to look at all of the texts from all of the groups and we can see a much larger picture. So we can see that the church allowed uh, paintings, images, but it was only of that one story. It wasn't about our own becoming conscious or be or achieving a higher state of consciousness. It was about following and obeying. And that lasted for hundreds of years. The church destroyed text, uh, closed down schools, uh, actually destroyed what they call the pagan world. But that was the, the 
brilliance of the Greek culture, basically. Uh, no one even could find a text that was written in Greek until much, much later. That whole culture wasn't even known. It was, it's hard for us to realize just what the Dark Ages meant. There was very little that could be learned. And so now we arrive at about 1,000 years uh, A.D., and this is the beginning of the high middle ages. And the, there's an explosion <laughs> of images and stories that have to do not with following someone else, but with taking our own labyrinthine journey into the forest and becoming conscious of all these things that have been condemned by the church. One of the threads related to this awakening that you describe has to do with uh, the tradition coming out of Ireland and uh, the Gaelic countries that had preserved certain teachings, perhaps even going back to the time of the Holy Grail itself. So, uh, that was part of the awakening. And I suppose another part of it was that uh, Europe, although it was in the Dark Ages, was surrounded by Byzantium and was surrounded by Arabic culture, and, and these cultures were far more vibrant. Exactly. Nothing would have happened. I think we would not have had the High Middle Ages had we not had those cultures. And starting with uh, the Hibernian mysteries, uh, the old Irish mysteries, the, the Celtic, the Welch, and they hadn't been destroyed, actually. So those then really began to flow through, uh, throughout Ireland and England and uh, Brittany and France and Germany, also into Spain and uh, Northern Africa and into the Holy Lands. These stories were just, it was like the breath of life for people who had been cut off from uh, these symbols and these this deeper understanding. And certainly you mentioned Byzantium, that was, they had not destroyed the Greek culture because they were actually formed by Megara, which was a Greek city. They kept the Greek culture and the uh, Italian Renaissance would never have happened without Byzantium. And these uh, Islamic cultures that surrounded Europe and going into Spain, into Cordova, uh, Europe was not very highly developed when Cordova was really blossoming, uh, probably around through the 7th and 9th century and later. But uh, they really fed into Europe. People would go from Europe to hear uh, uh, the philosophers, and there were Jews and uh, Muslims and Christians, and they actually uh, got along and discussed things together. And so it was a very vibrant uh there were very vibrant cultures, I should say, surrounding Europe at that time. And we really need to remember that our roots are in those cultures. We, I don't know how we would have survived intellectually had it not been for those cultures. And we don't seem to give them enough credit. I was so amazed to learn about between the seventh and ninth centuries in Baghdad and in Persia, the the brilliance and the equality of study, men and women studied together almost every field that one can imagine. And they discovered things that we thought we had discovered first much later, but we took credit for it. It was just a vibrant uh, culture and and for which we need to be deeply grateful. 
So one of the very important threads in the awakening of Europe is the arrival of several different versions of the legends of the Holy Grail. And this seemed to have captivated people and also, I think, led to a culture of chivalry and respect for women. How, how did it come about? And what are some of the deeper essences or threads within that legend? Well, there are several stories about where it came from. It uh, certainly from the old Irish, the mysteries, uh, the Hibernian mysteries. That was a very ancient tradition, uh, which we need to know more about. Uh, Wales, um, there were stories uh, certainly honoring the feminine, and it probably had many other strains as well. But when it when it started moving, it just, it just put everything on fire because it was exactly what we had not been able to even think about or image for hundreds of years. Here was, uh, here were the knights, we might say, King Arthur's court, uh, who realized that they, there's something missing because the king is, has a wasteland. His, and Genevieve is gone. He no longer, King Arthur no longer is with uh, the feminine aspect of himself. And he has a wound. He is the wounded king, and he's wounded in the genitals, which means he cannot be creative. So he also realizes that he and the land are one. When he looks out, he is in a wasteland. So I've always been so amazed with this, is that when this awakening comes, it shows exactly what is missing. Uh, the king, the male, we are not in contact at all with the feminine, with that loving, mundus imaginalis, heart consciousness. And the king cannot die. This is an interesting thing. And we have to go back to Egypt, to the Egyptian mysteries and the said festival to really understand what we're seeing here. And I think the root of that uh, story is in Egypt, that the Pharaoh has to, the king, has to take a journey every seven years or so into death. He must go into that depth of himself and the cosmos and confront death and fuse death with his own living consciousness and survive it. Only that way can we be creative. That the individual journey is a journey through the labyrinth, uh, confronting death and life and coming back, balancing this within our own consciousness. But now, this cannot happen. Uh, the king can't die, and he can't create. So he's neither living nor dead. And I think it's a wonderful uh, play of that uh, said festival that it cannot take place. Why? Because for 700 years, we have not confronted death. We have not taken the individual journey. We have been told to worship someone else who has died for us. No one can die for us or for our sins. The archetypal image is that we are born into darkness in a sense of not knowing who we are. But as we go along, we take that journey into the labyrinth. We confront all aspects of ourselves and the cosmos, and we die ourselves to that limited uh, consciousness so that we can give birth to our higher self, 
This is the secret tradition that Jesus taught. He did not teach that he died for us, but that we will all die so that we can be reborn to this higher consciousness that we really are. And in the Nagamati text, he says, I, I, I came to remind you of who you are. And so, uh, that was a, a powerful aspect of the story. And in order to know who we are, we have to know that we have this mundus imaginalis, we have the heart consciousness, and that the feminine must be a part of our lives. It was so beautifully told in the stories during the high middle ages of, of this, the feminine that gives birth to everything. She is the sovereign of the land and that we must learn how to serve her, to love her, to respect her, and to desire her. As the Egyptian mysteries said, we must desire the feminine and integrate her into our lives. So uh, the journey was uh, an independent journey, not someone else taking the journey for us. We must take that journey. And every one of the nights split out into the forest, the labyrinthine forest, and they each was confronted with everything that that particular night needed to know. But always they were confronted with how to serve the feminine how to integrate her into their lives, because she had been completely excluded from Christianity. King Arthur, the actual King Arthur, probably lived around the second century or so AD at a time when the Romans were abandoning their rule of Britain. It's interesting that the legend is set at that time, which would probably be close to the beginning of the Dark Ages. Uh, with the archetypal world, we create what is needed. And that's what seemed to have grown through the centuries, as our, was the story that would fulfill our longing. Uh, for example, there are some stories which are very, very interesting, a dreadfully ugly hag. And a question that she would ask, it was always a learning, a trying to learn, first of all, how to be loyal uh, to among the men, what, what kind of relationship should they have, and how should they relate to the feminine. This was what was so important uh, to learn, and especially for the feminine, because she had been so excluded. Mary did exist uh, as the mother uh, of Jesus, but she was not divine. She was not considered divine. And Jesus had certainly had relationship with Mary Magdalena, but the church ended up making her a whore and getting rid of her altogether. So here, let's say King Arthur's court was confronted with all of this emptiness. And I think that for a long time, the psyche in Europe was working to try to find those archetypes that would fulfill their own soul's longing. Now, I recall reading portions, at least, of the one of the original Grail stories in which the Grail is discovered by a knight named Parsifal. And as I recall, he was something of a lout in, in the beginning. Uh, he actually raped a woman, uh, I believe, and uh, went through quite an incredible transformation before he became the uh, discoverer or recipient of the Grail. 
Yes, he's, uh, I suppose that can give us some kind of comfort in a way that he isn't an extraordinary person. He's just, uh, well, allowed, if you say it's pretty bad. Uh, but he was simply unknowing. He, he had lived with his mother in the forest. Uh, his father, uh, was dead and he knew absolutely nothing. He saw knights coming along and he followed them and, uh, ended up at the court, but he, he did everything wrong. But, this is kind of encouraging because step by step, he begins to learn from what he's done wrong. And he certainly has no sense of the feminine and how to behave, but he does learn. He is transformed step by step. And the women teach him a great deal. Well, one of the most amazing features of the high Middle Ages, and they're still around today, are all these magnificent Gothic cathedrals. They seem so sophisticated in their architecture, and there are so many symbols embedded throughout these cathedrals. You report that uh, the builders of these cathedrals seem to have maintained a, a mystery tradition that survived through the Middle Ages or uh, let me put it differently, survive through the Dark Ages. Yes, that's. Uh, I was amazed uh, with those stories. Uh, the Egyptian uh, mysteries of birth and death, I th they actually move throughout all of Europe. Uh, I th they are powerful, and they blend with uh, alchemy, pre-Socratic philosophers, and the Sufis. It's it is a real deep basis, and the builders uh, within those mysteries were known to have been mystics and followers of this uh, Egyptian tradition uh, of integrating the feminine, uh, of the mad, mad, the mundus imaginalis, the soul, the the heart consciousness, and that they were the great builders. Some even say they did the megalithic uh, structures around the world, and that that this was a secret ancient tradition of builders. And of course, they knew geometry. And during the high Middle Ages, they built the cathedrals, which were incredible um, alembics, one might almost say, to initiate the individual, that certain that the geometry of them uh, allowed a certain resonance or patterns of frequency to occur. And... Uh, Keith Critchlow talks a lot about how the cathedral was built in proportion to the human uh, body. Uh, people could find uh, a DVD of his uh, on the cathedrals. And let's see, what is it called? Uh, the sacred geometry of the cathedrals. And it's, it's just amazing what one learns by watching that uh, video, that these were Again, it's a rep, a sort of another form of the symbol of the tree, the tree that's deeply rooted in the earth and its branches go up to the spirit world and it gives fruit. This is the way we are to be. We are rooted in the earth and reach to the higher self. And we've talked about the meniers. Many of them, many people relate the menir to the spires because here again, Chart was, I'm talking about Chart especially, Chart was on sacred ground and the spires were, of course, rooted in the earth and going up uh, to the sky. So it was an ancient tradition embodied in this architecture, but it's, it's extraordinarily complex and uh, formed by these builders who seem to have a, uh, this sacred tradition. 
it's said that after these cathedrals were built, no one knew where they were. Same with the stained glass that that seemed, they called it alchemical glass because it was made by people who knew how, they say, to draw in spirit into these stained glasses. But some of them were Sufis. We know that. In fact, the building of cathedrals seemed to have drawn all, uh, spiritual traditions together to do this during the high middle ages. So it's, uh, it's, it's really a marvel if one could, could be in that cathedral uh, without too much going on. I think it could be quite an experience, but that was the very definition of cathedral, that it was constructed in such a way that when the human being entered it, it was possible to initiate a higher state of consciousness. So it's a reawakening of the idea that uh, the spiritual experience is an experience to be had, not just a doctrine to follow. It's absolutely that. And that's where the church went astray for its own reasons in teaching a doctrine. Certainly the life of Jesus is, is, is very informative and healing and helpful. But the point is that we are to become that. We, that's why Jesus said, I want you to remember who you are and help us to try to find ways to understand that and to uh, become that. And what is so interesting, and I did not know this before I was doing the research, is that at Chart, at about 1000 uh, AD, there was the, there were these master teachers who formed the wisdom school. And these master teachers actually knew and were teaching the secret tradition of Jesus. And the roots of, of their knowing that may have come uh, from uh, the Greek tradition because the story is told that at about 40-something, uh, uh, Paul went to Athens. And of course, Paul had had a Gnostic experience uh, on the road to Damascus. And he... Uh, taught he uh, in uh, Athens, and Dionysus, Areopagite, heard him, and he would just, un he said, Paul was on fire. It was this exciting story of gnosis and of achieving the higher consciousness within oneself. Well, the work of Dionysus continued to exist and was told by people throughout Europe uh, for centuries, and it also landed in the hands of these master teachers at Chartres. So they knew the secret tradition, but they were really great intellectual masters as well as great visionaries. And it's almost as though the Egyptian mysteries were reborn at Chartres, but it was the secret tradition that Jesus taught. And I was not aware of that. I, I found that that particular section on the High Middle Ages was one of the most fascinating uh, periods of research, I think, in my life to realize how all of the spiritual traditions came together at Chartres. There were the Celtic, the Welsh, the Arthurian, the Greek, uh, Platonic, Aristotelian, and the Jesus traditions. Uh, and of course, uh, that was included, the Parsifal traditions, all of these stories that could not be told as being having any significance or meaning at all during the Dark Ages. There was only one story and one interpretation of that story. And so now, Chart seems to be the 
collector, the magnet that draws all of Europe's soul stories to it. It's true stories. So they were both intellectual and visionary, and it just created a magnificent uh, two, two to three hundred years in Chartres. And I gather that the cathedral at Chartres and, and, and in Paris uh, and many of the others were dedicated to the divine feminine. Yes, it's a Notre Dame. It's kind of interesting. It's to Our Lady. And there's the story that all of the cathedrals that were built really within a relatively short period of time, uh, I don't know, I don't remember exactly how many, maybe 10, that they were uh, built on the land uh, according to the constellation of Virgo, which would be the Virgin. And yes, it was everything practically was dedicated to the feminine, to Our Lady, uh, Our Lady of Light. It was that rebirth of what had been so destroyed, so suppressed, uh, that for hundreds of years, people had no uh, way of really allowing that to awaken within themselves. Now, let me jump around a little bit. I want to go back to the Grail legend for a moment. As I recall, there was a key moment in the story of the Grail. The, the king is, is dying, the land is a wasteland, but things turn around when the quester for the Grail asks the king, what is it that ails you? It seems to be an expression of compassion. Yes, this is, uh, I love that story that, uh, in order here, if we put ourselves in the place of the king, that our lives are a wasteland, uh, we can't die, we can't create, uh, we can't open to the higher self and everything is a wasteland. What happens? Well, there has to be someone who comes, but this is not someone outside ourselves. It's an aspect of ourself that comes and actually becomes conscious enough to see that we are a mess and ask, what ails thee? That question opens the door because it's a recognition that we are not well and that perhaps we could be healed. So I think that's a beautiful symbolic story of the time when we awaken, what is it that's ailing me? And then we begin to discover what we can do. It's like the Baba Yaga thread, that ball of yarn that's thrown out in front of us. So from that, we go on our journey and we have many experiences and we make mistakes, we do foolish things, uh, and that's a good thing because it teaches us that growth involves mistakes. And so we have to forgive ourselves along the way as long as we recognize what we have done that will destroy us and the world. So that uh, definitely is what happens. The moment that we can ask that question, we are in the labyrinth. Something happened during the high Middle Ages in Europe that seemed to bring the whole culture together when you consider the uh, enormous amount of economic activity that had to take place for those cathedrals to be built, hundreds of them, and the uh, artwork that went into it, and, and the metaphysics, the philosophy, the, the history, the culture, all of that seemed to be unified around the idea of both being grounded in the earth and at the same time pointing to the heavens. 
Yes, and Keith Crutchlow talks a lot about that, how the the cultures were so much in favor of that. They wanted to help. They they agreed that the money should go there. And it does seem that there were artists from all over Europe uh, and beyond who were there to work uh, together to bring this about. Uh, it's uh, It was an amazingly creative time. And it's interesting that we haven't in school been taught that this is the this is a Renaissance period. In many ways, it was it was greater Renaissance than the Italian Renaissance that came later in terms of the inner development. Uh, what came later, of course, was this bursting out of of the church's control and and realizing that we can do so many things. But uh, yes, it was definitely people were in favor of that. And another story that we're not told too often, uh, or that isn't very common knowledge, is that there were groups of monks and uh, the Cistercian monks and the women, the Begin women. Uh, I hadn't even heard of them uh, when I guess maybe in my forties I heard of them. But uh, these were women who were independent. They were not nuns. They were independent. They had their own crafts and and supported themselves. But they were deeply spiritual. Many of them were mystics. And there were mystics outside the Begin women, and then among the Cistercians. It was a, a time when they really understood the connection between the symbolic beingness of us and the heart. And the heart had to be nurtured and developed as a way of knowing and a way of entry into the spiritual world. I think that these groups of women and men did so much to make, to create a field in which much of this could happen. They felt that an individual spiritual journey was really not only a journey to heal our own individual soul, but that it was a journey to heal the earth. There was deep um, uh, desire to heal not only themselves, but to heal the earth. They saw that there was so much in need of healing and that we could only do that through the heart, through love. And they developed, um, they developed this ability, it seems, to open the heart in ways that were very powerful and creative. And I think they had a, um, a sort of quiet effect on the culture. Unfortunately, I guess, or perhaps fortunately, depending on how you look at it, every great movement, even movements of spiritual awakening, have a shadow side. And I know during the high Middle Ages, we also began to see persecutions of Jews, persecutions, I think, of witches, and, and the Crusades, these uh, enormous military expeditions, uh, often uh, resulting in disaster. We have to look so carefully at that, because while the High Middle Ages was participating in the journey of the heart, uh, and Certainly the uh, Cathars who were in southern France, they also were the troubadours, the singing uh, songs of love songs for women. I mean, it was wonderful culture. But the church, as the church began to realize what was going on, there were those of us who in the church who uh, condemned it and realized that it would take away their power. So 
they the church was after the Albigensians, the Cathars in southern France, and uh, one of the crusades was formed to destroy them. And I think it was the second crusade that killed tens of thousands of them. They were very they were part of this high uh, awakening. In fact, they had carried this tradition. Uh, from the beginnings of the Roman Church, they had carried this tradition to southern France and had maintained it. So there was that attempt to to kill them, to murder them, get them out of the way. And uh, also, they were horrified when they began to realize that the Parsifal story had to do with the individual's own achievement of this higher being and integration of the feminine. So it, I think the stories began about um, 1175 and were ended at 1225. Nothing was written after that time because the church stepped in. But it was absolutely that story ignited all of Europe for those 50 years. And there was another kind of sabotage that the the masculine character of the story of course was to discover within himself the light and he was guided with the feminine he needed to know how to serve her and to love her and to desire her well the church set forth a character one of the later stories is galahad and then it was very clear you could only achieve the grail if you did not have a relationship with a woman. So it's exactly the opposite. Again, it's it's destroying that feminine aspect of who we are. And the truly spiritual person, according to the church, could not have anything to do with the woman. Only he could actually achieve the grail. And so that was the end of the stories. So that was another thing. And yes, uh, then the Crusades, it just dreadful crusades were going on at the same time and then later the witch hunts and we can see what the culture did to the women again so it it's been a, a terrible pathology in the western world that uh, that we have destroyed the things that could heal us and that could allow us to to remember who we are now, I would like to mention for viewers who are unfamiliar with our previous interviews, I'd like to refer them to our first interview. I'm linking to it right now on the upper right-hand side of your screen. It was titled, The Inversion of Our True Myths. And in that interview, Betty, we discussed how over and over again, when this authentic spiritual understanding awakens and blossoms in culture, there is a backlash. And often a very powerful black backlash because people seeking power instead of speaking inner wisdom and gnosis assume control. And because they have the power, uh, things often turn dark. Yes, yes. And I think every age is confronted with that. Uh, it's, I like to think of it as those of us who have not awakened to our, who we are and our potential. We don't have that power empowerment within us that we seem to think that we need to, uh, have power over others and that we know best how to run the world. We are superior. It's that arrogance that comes with ignorance, uh, of not knowing that the only way to have a world that is the way we want it is if we control it. And, and we're certainly confronted with, uh, 
those desires today uh, in our culture. And, uh, and very often they would negate the potential within the human being. And I've mentioned before with artificial intelligence, if we go so far in one direction uh, without knowing what our potentials are as a human being, uh, I think you suggest that in PK Man, that we, we need to be aware of what are our potentials really. That's where we need to study, it seems to me, to know that rather than uh, going in the direction of of sub, sort of subverting our own potential, uh, that we need to know what are we capable of. And we can't know that if we are controlled by others. But this has been all the way through our history, is that the have been those who want to control us, have power over us. And sometimes for hundreds of years, we are absolutely stopped in our evolution. And we need to be aware of our past so that we can help this not to happen in our future, that we can heal those aspects of ourselves that need to control and help them to find that inner inner empowerment. One of the very interesting things that you point out in your book is that these great cathedrals that are the embodiment of deep truths and contain symbols from many, many different spiritual traditions within them, many of these cathedrals have labyrinths built into them. And the symbol of the labyrinth is very important in terms of the journey of the soul. Yes, and that's that's how we know that they were Gnostic, <laughs> you know, is that they the labyrinth is always the symbol for the individual journey inward. And yes, many of these cathedrals had the labyrinths. Uh, they were just some of them were destroyed later by the church, but s- some of them still exist. And certainly the labyrinth at Chartres uh, does exist, and beautiful labyrinth. But it is definitely a journey of the individual. And we are told that in the labyrinth at Chart, that it has the same number of stones that uh, of the days that a child's uh, fetus is in the uterus. So when we walk that, it's the second birth, our second birth. And when we arrive at the center, we look up and there is the rose window. And at the center of the rose window is the feminine holding the child. And that is not, that is seen as it can be Jesus, but it's the birth of the higher consciousness. When we get to the center of that labyrinth, we are absolutely uh, synchronized with the birth of Christ consciousness. Now, speaking of the birth of Christ consciousness and and the labyrinth and and the great awakening of the high Middle Ages, I'm I'm reminded of T.S. Eliot's great poem, The Wasteland, and how he refers back to the rose window and to the grail story. And he seems to be suggesting that this age, this modern age, is a time uh, of potential awakening uh, comparable in some ways uh, or resonating with what happened in the high Middle Ages. Yes, and I think it is. Uh, I have said in Merchants of Light that there were four Renaissance periods in Europe, and today is the fifth Renaissance that we have 
I mean, just in the 20th century, many of these shaman mystic cultures were discovered that we didn't even know about. And then the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, the Nagamari texts were discovered. And then we began to give equal weight to all of these ancient texts that were in the Apocrypha, just many of the texts that we didn't pay much attention to. And we're getting a much larger picture of our past and we are awakening to uh, the shamanic traditions uh, and spiritual traditions all around the world. And at the same time, it seems that that the sins of the past, you might say, the suppression and repression uh, and the superiority and arrogance and violence that came with that uh, are still with us. And this is the darkness that we have to confront in the labyrinthine forest of our own journeys. What is it in us yet that might give sustenance to that attitude? It's, uh, I think that all of these centuries of suppression have, have brought about this terrible darkness. And, you know, I have said before uh, that my husband and I had the visions after our son's death. And I was very clear that I was to write about the decay, the decay that is in culture. I didn't know what was going on when that started happening, but it's really made me aware. Not only have I become more conscious of, of the spiritual tradition within Western culture, but I have also tried to understand better the decay and, and how that was caused by all of this suppression and repression of the past, that it delayed our evolution, you might say. But I think that the High Middle Ages, again, they knew, these Begin women and some of the monks knew that the only way to heal that is through heart, through the heart, through the love, through this mundus imaginalis that's connected to the heart that opens us to the archetypal world and to our own higher self, that the violence will continue to destroy us. I think they gave us that knowledge, and it's very important for us today, I think. Betty Kovacs, once again, this has been a very heartfelt, wise, and powerful discussion about a crucial time in Western history. Betty, thank you so much for being with me. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. Thank you. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us.